This is the third and final series in our journey of discovering what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In our first series, we asked the question, who is Jesus? And I hope that you conclude with me that he is indeed the Son of God. The second series was entitled The Jesus Lifestyle. We talked about if we believe he's Jesus, we accept him, and we're going to follow him, then we need to live like him, which means we need to learn to love like him and forgive like him. And Last weekend, we even talked about resting like him. We talked about the Sabbath. How many of you um, intend on taking a nap today sometime? That, see, now, that, that message was for you, wasn't it, all right? It's, it's okay to do that, all right? Rest in Christ. This is our new series called Encounter, and Jesus spoke to our mind in the first series, our will in the second. This one, he speaks to our heart. And he takes us with him into the passion that leads up to Resurrection Sunday. So I hope you'll be here for each step of the way. Our story begins with Jesus making his way toward Jerusalem. It is the Passover. It's the last time he'll go to Jerusalem. And there are people, uh, Jews from all over the Roman Empire who come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. There's more people than the city can accommodate. It's full of, of all kinds of Jews from all kinds of areas of the Roman Empire. And there's an expectation in the air that perhaps the Messiah is here. As people hear and know about Jesus, word quickly spreads. So there's a great deal of expectation that's going on at this point in time. It's into this environment that Jesus is about to enter, and he tells two of his disciples to go on ahead of him and to retrieve a colt, a young donkey that's never been ridden before, and they bring it to Jesus. And that's where we pick up our story in Luke 19. So if you turn open or turn your Bibles on to Luke chapter 19, I would appreciate that. Luke chapter 19. And while you're doing that, may I encourage you to start inviting people to be with us here for Resurrection Sunday, for Easter Sunday. I invited somebody to my Adopt 7 list yesterday. I just want to encourage you to invite family and friends. It's such an easy invite. If you have children, don't miss out on, uh, on the 15th, I believe it is. We have kind of our family Easter celebration and uh, just great, great opportunities there to make yourself available of. All right, you're in Luke chapter 19 right now, and I want to pick it up in verse 35. It says, they, bought it, they brought it to Jesus, the little donkey, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Another gospel tells us that they also put palm branches in the way. And by the way, I do know it's not traditional Palm Sunday this weekend. So I have my calendar right. But we have so much to move through that we're, we're kind of jumping ahead. Is that okay? Yes. You're right with that? Okay. All right. I asked the Lord about it and felt it was okay to do it. All right? Verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began, to joy, began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So imagine in your mind, Jesus is on this colt. He's on a narrow cobble street. He's going down the Mount of Olives. He's going to cross the Kidron Valley, and then he's going to go into Jerusalem itself. His followers by the hundreds are there. The crowd is there. There's probably thousands of people that are cheering and are gawking and are wondering and are praising and are hoping. I mean, it is quite the scene. And suddenly his followers break out with the words that we discover in verse 38. Blessed 
is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Matthew adds more commentary to this. Matthew chapter 21, verse 9. He says, Hosanna to the son of David. And Hosanna means save now. Save now to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save now or Hosanna in the highest heaven. And of course, what they're celebrating and reflecting is something that prophet Zechariah had prophesied over 400 years earlier. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the prophet said, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You put this all together. In essence, what the disciples, the followers of Jesus are cheering and saying is that the Messiah, the son of David, the saved now is here. And he's about to enter Jerusalem. He's about to take his throne. We're about to be liberated. God is calling Israel again to rule the world through his people. And I'm sure the apostles must have been thinking to themselves, pretty soon we're all going to have our own throne next to him. Twelve thrones to rule with him over the world. The crowds of disciples, his followers, they're, they're convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, they have seen the miracles. We read that. They've seen him make the lame walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak. He has caused those with diseases to be free of their diseases, those who are dead to rise again. He's cast out demons, and nobody ever spoke the way Jesus speaks. He has such authority when he speaks. They've been waiting for a long time for him to declare himself as the Messiah. Now, finally, Jesus does so. He's gone to Jerusalem before. He's been very quiet about it. But this time, very outwardly, he's presenting himself as the king. Will they accept him as the king? The crowds, they're fickle. They've heard about Jesus. Some of them have seen him. Maybe some of them have been recipients of his miracles. But the crowds, they're more interested in what Jesus can change in regards to circumstances than they are him changing their actual lives. They're a fickle bunch. And in fact, John chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus tells us from the, in the very beginning that it says that he did not trust himself to men because he knew what was in the heart of men. He was careful who he trusted himself to. And the very same crowds that are cheering him today, we know later on are going to chant, crucify him, crucify him. The Romans, they see this whole thing as a big joke. I mean, they've seen generals and Caesar in a kingly kind of parade and presentation, in full regalia, in the chariot being drawn by mighty steeds. They know the pomp and ceremony when a king comes to town. Jesus, this is a joke. He's a peasant from Nazareth. He's a poor man riding on a, on a little donkey for crying out loud. How on earth can they be chanting it's a king? It's entertainment for them, at least for now. And for the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, this makes them angry. They are seething with anger because Jesus is threatening their lifestyle. He's threatening their control over the people. He's a rival. He won't keep the rules. <laughs> He's a rule breaker. We saw that last weekend. And they wish they could just get rid of him. 
But you know what? There's somebody else in the crowd that you know. Do you know who it is? You. You're in the crowd too. I'm in the crowd as well. And the question I have to answer is, am I ready and willing to embrace Jesus as king of my life? Are you? And don't answer that question too quickly because you got to embrace him the way he presents himself, the way he is. I can't have my version of Jesus. i got to accept Jesus the way that he is. See, the world back then was looking for a king, and the world today is looking for a king. Did you know that? Your neighbors, your fellow students, your coworkers, your friends, your family members, they're all looking for a king. You know, America is looking for a king today. Asia is looking for a king. South America is looking for a king. Central America is looking for a king. Europe's looking for a king. The whole world is looking for a king today. Someone who will come in and rescue us politically, socially, physically, economically. We all want a king. C.S. Lewis once wrote, monarchy is easily debunked. The actual record of kings is abysmal, full of tyranny. Yet, where we are forbidden to honor a king, we will honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead, even famous gangsters. For spiritual nature, like physical nature, will be served. Deny it food, it will gobble poison. In other words, what C.S. Lewis, I think, is saying is we have to have a ruler. It's just part of our nature. We want somebody to rule us. We want somebody to lead us. We, we long for that, and where we can't have it, politically speaking, we, we make rulers or we make kings out of others, celebrities, sports stars, whatever it is, but we all want somebody to follow. It's just something in us looking for that. Timothy Keller, in talking about the very same thing, puts it like this. He says that this this need for a ruler, this need for a king. He says, it is memory trace in the collective unconsciousness of the human race. In other words, it's, 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 a, it's a little memory trace in our, in our unconsciousness that, that goes all the way back. And I think what he's saying is it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God created us and put us on earth for us to submit to him, for him to rule over us in the benevolence. But man said no to God. Man said, I don't want you ruling over me. I want to be my own king. But here's the weird thing. We walk away and say we want to be our own king. But what's the first thing we want? A king. A king to rule us. Politically, socially, whatever it is. Isn't it interesting? Think about this. And, and, and our students, think about this for a minute. Think about the media today. How much in movies, in animation, in video games is all about Kings, queens, dragons. It's all about heroes, protagonists, antagonists, the arc, you know, the plot of the story. I mean, we all are cheering for the good guy to win. I know some people cheer for the evil guy, but generally speaking, we, we have this innate sense in which we need rescuing. Even if it's in our fantasy world, we need a king to cheer for. We need a hero. We need someone to rescue us. Where does that all come from in every culture? Where does that come from? We all have our stories. It comes from that memory in our unconsciousness. Need a king. Need a king. The question, though, is this. Will I let Jesus be that king? Is he the king I'll embrace? Is he the king I want and I desire? 
There's just some things about him that, you know, to us is kind of quirky. It's hard for us to accept. I mean, Jesus comes riding in in this passage of Scripture, and he comes riding in on this colt or this, this young donkey. Now, if Jesus had asked me for some advice on this, I would have recommended a great big steed, a mighty horse, right? Strong and muscular that would have put him way above all the heads and shoulders of the crowd. And I'd had that thing kind of rear back on his hind feet and kick its legs out and kind of snort. Now that, that's a way to, that's a way to come in, don't you think? That would be impressive. But when I think about this little cult, I just think about this spindly leg little creature that in my mind is, is almost like it's about to collapse under the weight of this adult, of Jesus riding on it. It just doesn't seem very kingly. But look what it says. Back again in verse 38, it says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You know, you can't have peace on earth if you don't have peace in heaven. And there's a sense in which Jesus comes. And by the way, in the ancient days, when a king came to town on a horse, watch out. It, may, it meant he was coming and there was going to be some military action. In the ancient days, when a king came riding on a donkey, it meant he came in peace. Well, Christ comes in peace. He comes to make peace between heaven and earth. He comes to appease God's judgment and God's wrath against mankind because the Bible makes it very clear to us that we have rebelled against God. You say, when did I rebel against God? In your first parent, in your father, Abraham. Abraham rebelled against God and all of us have received his nature. We are all rebels by nature. We're all sinful by nature. We're all selfish by nature. All of us are. And God said that the consequence of that is death and separation and that there's not a way in the universe that we can make up for it. So we're in big trouble. No religion, no amount of being good, no, nothing is going to make up for it. So what Jesus does is he comes and he says, I'm going to make up for it for you. I'm going to come and I'm going to take your, your death sentence on myself. I'm going to die your death for you so you can be forgiven. Will you accept me as king? And what's weird is they refuse to. The crowds refuse to accept him as, as king because when it's all said and done, that's not the kind of king they want. In their mind, he's saving them from the wrong enemy. They want him to save them from Rome, from hunger, from disease, from economic poverty and challenges. That's what they want. And when he doesn't do it, they reject him. The religious leaders of the day, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they don't need Jesus to save them from their sins. They have the law to do that. Keep the law. Keep the rules. Live righteously. They don't need somebody to save them. They've got a system to, to save people. So they reject the king. And the Romans, well, they don't need Jesus to save them because, I mean, they just live a very immoral, sensual lifestyle. That's who the Romans were, very immoral, very corrupt. You know, worship Caesar, worship whatever gods you want to, behave yourself, but you can pretty much live any way that you want. Well, it sounds very familiar to our culture today, doesn't it? I mean, a culture where we're 
pretty much invited to live the way we want? I guess you could say, you know, we have our religions. We don't need God to save me from religion. Our religion, by and large, in America today, is relativism. And relativism is you live your way, I'll live my way. I won't bug you, you don't bug me. And we'll all get along. Syncretism. I'll borrow a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Judaism, a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Hinduism, or some others. You know, I'll kind of mix and match, and I'll create my own religion, the flavor of the month. It may change next year, but it's just as long as I believe something, as long as I try to live a good life and you do your thing, it's all okay. Or we can take the attitude of the Romans. You know, I, I'm going to live my lifestyle the way I want. Don't tell me about my morals. You do what's right for you, I'll do what's right for me. I don't need a God to save me from my desires, from my sensuality, from all those things. See, by and large today, people don't want Jesus to be king if he insists on being the kind of king that he says he's going to be. And that's all the result of self-righteousness and pride at work in our lives. And the question is, are you willing to embrace him as king? If he insists that being king means he has to deliver me from my sin and I have to humble myself and admit that I need him to deliver me and I need him to lead my life, I can't lead my life. He has to lead my life for me. That's really hard to do, isn't it? That's a hard message to receive. And so they rejected Jesus. But get this, it's not just the crowds, it's not just the Pharisees. And by the way, even the disciples rejected Jesus because when he didn't do what they thought he was going to do for them, they all ran. Peter even denied him. But here, get this, on the cross, there's a point in time when Jesus cries out and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lama, lama, sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He might as well have said, God, why have you rejected me? Father, why have you rejected me? The father rejected Jesus because he became sin for you and me. Our sins were placed on him. And God is holy. God couldn't have anything to do with that. So you talk about absolute loneliness. You talk about ultimate rejection. Jesus faced it. Now, how do you feel when you've been rejected? Because how many of you have ever been rejected? Of course. We all have, right? Maybe you're living with it right now. Sometimes we're rejected because we've done things, and I guess in a sense we deserve to be rejected because of what we said or what we did. Many other times, though, we're rejected and we didn't do anything wrong. We tried our very best. And when a person gets rejected, there are many responses. One is to withdraw. Another is self-pity. Another is to become angry or vengeful. Sometimes when we're rejected, we want to be accepted so badly that we'll do whatever it takes in order to be accepted. What is Jesus going to do? Is he going to withdraw? Is he going to feel sorry for himself? Is he going to say, I quit? Is he going to get even? Well, let's watch what he does. Pick up the story. It's now Monday morning, verse 45. How does Jesus handle what he knows is going to be utter rejection even by his own father? Verse 45, it says, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a house or a den of robbers. 
Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So Jesus, on Monday, knowing what's coming, knowing that the people who are cheering for him today will yell, crucify him tomorrow, still moves forward with the plan to make us acceptable to his Father. Still moves forward in spite of the rejection to make it possible for us to be forgiven. And watch what he does. He goes into the temple and he clears out the money changers in another passage and he clears out those who are selling sacrifices. Because remember, you've got Jews from the entire Roman Empire who are coming. They can't bring animals with them. It's too far away. So they buy the animals for sacrifice in the temple. But they're selling them animals that are defective and they're selling them animals for an exorbitant amount of money. They've turned it into a business. So he's angry. He clears it all out. He says, this is my father's house. This is to be a place of worship. But watch this. He does something even just as significant. When he clears out all the sacrifices and those who are selling them, it's in essence what he does is he presents himself as the sacrifice. It's like none of that's going to work anymore. There's just one sacrifice you need, and it's me. And you're going to reject me, but I'm still going to sacrifice my life so you can be forgiven, so you can be accepted, so you can be loved. Now will you receive me as your king? Do we want a king like that. What does it mean to make Jesus our king? How many of you notice there's a saddle on stage? See that? Wondering what that's for? I'm not sure. No, it's king. Let's talk about it for just a minute, okay? You know, when I, when I was reading and studying uh, that passage of scripture, some of the folks that I was reading about it, I, I got a little insight that I, I never really had thought much about before. And I was thinking about that little colt, that little donkey that had never been ridden before. You know, when you go to ride an animal like, like a horse, like a donkey, like a mule, it, one of the first things you have to do is you have to break it, right? And you break it by, by getting it to trust you and by riding it and falling off and riding it and falling off until finally, finally, it's, it's broken. By nature, an animal that's not been ridden before isn't going to just let you hop on and, and ride it. And in fact, you know, donkeys are known to be very stubborn. And the reason donkeys are known to be stubborn is because donkeys hate unfamiliarity. How many of you just don't like the unfamiliar. I didn't mean to insult you, but you know what I'm trying to say, right? We don't like the unfamiliar. What happens to the unfamiliar? We get scared, right? So we either run, hold our ground, if we're angry enough, we'll charge, right? It's fascinating to me that this little colt is taken from its mother, has this adult sitting on it, 
is surrounded by chaos and just seems to go with the flow, with no challenge at all. And I wonder, I'm just wondering out loud, okay? I wonder to myself if somehow the creature knew the creator was riding him. Remember when Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee and there was a storm? And he's asleep in the boat and the disciples are freaked out. They wake him up and they say, don't you care, we're all going to drown. And he gets up and he tells the wind to stop and it stops. It's placid. Flat as can be now. And the disciples go, whoa, who is this that even nature itself obeys him? I look at that little cult and I think, nature obeys him. And there's a beautiful picture here. And the picture is this. Are you willing to embrace Jesus as my king means I've got to be like that little colt. I've got to be willing to trust him. I've got to let him ride on my life. Will I let his presence, will I let his presence live in me? Will I let his presence ride on me? What does it mean to have the presence of God ride on your life? Well, you know, oftentimes when, when uh, people ride horses, creatures like that, they have reins that go with it, right? And the reins are, are used to control the creature. You can stop it. You can get it to go. You can steer it to the left. You can steer it to the right. As long as the animal submits to the reins, the driver is in control. Are the reins of your life in the hands of the Holy Spirit? Say, what do you mean by the reins of my life? Well, for instance, your thought life, your mind. Who, who has control of your mind? You or the Holy Spirit? If it's you, are you willing to hand the reins over to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, you control my thoughts. I want my thoughts to be controlled by the truth, not by lies, not by anything else, but by, but by you. We also have... We also have our will, our choices. We all make choices every day. You chose to come here. Well, some of you may not have had a choice, but you're here. Am I willing to, am I willing to surrender my choices to the Holy Spirit? Let him have control of my choosing according to his will, his plan, and his word. And we all have feelings. Talk about wild horses, right? Our feelings are powerful. Our mood, our emotions. Am I willing to hand my mood, my emotions, my feelings over to the Holy Spirit and say, God, honestly, I don't feel this way, but I'm going to give you the reins. I'm going to let your truth, your spirit control my emotions. I'm not going to let my emotions control me. Or our body. You know, if you're a believer, that body is not yours. Paul said so in Corinthians. He said, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. You were bought with a price. It's not your own. Am I willing to say, Lord, here's my body? Physically, sexually, Lord, here's my body. It's yours. You're in control. That's what it means to make Jesus the king of my life. To give him the reins. Psalm 32, 9 says, don't be like a horse or like a mule that doesn't understand, that has to have a bit and a bridle to make it come and to make it go. Are you stubborn? Or are you surrendered? Let's bow our heads. Father, 
that saddle and those reins speak so deeply to my own spirit. And I pray that you would cause it to speak deeply to our spirits right now. Lord, are our emotions in your hands? Is our will in your hands? Is our thought life in your hands? Is our body in your hands? Heads bowed, eyes closed, just you spending some time with God right now. I want you to picture a pair of reins in your mind right now. First, they represent your thoughts. Whose hands are they in? Yours or God's? If they're not in God's hands, could you hand them over today? Could you say, Lord, I'm sorry for trying to control my own thoughts, for, trying, for letting my thoughts be controlled by the media, controlled by my friends, controlled by my selfish nature. God, here's my thoughts. How about your will? We all have a will. Who determines your choices? Your peers? Yourself? Could you surrender your will to the Holy Spirit and to the truth of God's Word right now? And those emotions, oh my goodness. Who's in control of those feelings, that mood? Hardest thing to surrender, hardest thing in the world to surrender. Can you surrender it to the Holy Spirit right now? God, govern my emotions. And how about your body? It's not your own. The Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, lives in your body. He would like to have full use of your body according to his will and his word. Can you let it go to him? Father God, please lead us all, myself included, to live surrendered to King Jesus. To his ultimate rule and reign over our lives. These next few moments, we're going to sing a song about the king, and I'd ask you to stay if you can, and to sing this song as a sense of submission to King Jesus.